time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And before we get into our subject for today, I want to let you know about our first ever Apollos Watered weekend that's coming up. It's a men's retreat. It's a time where we get together as men, delve deep into the Word of God, especially the book of Daniel, so that we can learn how we might thrive in our modern Babylon. And I'm not just talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about the Western culture. How do we live? Live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I find that one of the greatest examples that we have in all of Holy Scripture is in the book of Daniel. Daniel lived in a difficult time, a time where his faith was not highly regarded, a time where he had to learn how to testify and be faithful to God in an environment that was anything but cooperative. It was, at times, a very hostile environment, and yet he thrived. He didn't give in. He didn't give up. He adjusted and learned how to live and follow God accordingly. I believe that's the example that we need today to learn how we might be able to thrive in our modern-day Babylon. So I want to extend that invitation to you, and that's taking place on Friday, February 19th to Sunday, February 21st of 2021, and our theme is entitled Thriving in Babylon. You can sign up on Phantom Ranch's website at phantomranch.org slash events. And if you would like to host an Apollos Watered Weekend, whether it's it's men and women together or or it's a men's retreat or a women's retreat, please don't hesitate to contact us at info at apolloswater.org. I also want to thank you to let you know that this episode has been sponsored by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team are the people that you need to call. She comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy is trustworthy and really does care about her clients. And I can say this completely with complete honesty and assurance because I know this for a fact I am one of her clients. She is my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but has regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. Henry Ford, founder of the assembly line and creator of the Model T, once said, anyone who stops learning is old, whether at 20 or 80. Anyone who keeps learning stays young. We are all to learn. It first happens from our parents, then the world around us, 
but especially we who are followers of Jesus have to learn from the Bible. The Bible is an inexhaustible book. That's why I love it. It can't be mastered completely. It's the one book that the more we probe and the more that we learn, the more we discover what we know and really what we don't know. It is humbling, invigorating, penetrating, and sustaining. I discover new truths each time that I read it, and I've been doing this for years. God, through the, through the Bible, continually offers us an invitation to learn from its pages, lessons on how we are to live, interact with God and those around us in such a way as to ensure our joy. God wants your joy. The problem that many of us have is that we try to find joy apart from God, and it can't be found. I want to invite you to learn from a neglected, overlooked, and undervalued text in the scriptures. And it's in the book of Acts chapter 1, and it's verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. And in this text, I, I believe that we can it, it allows us to help see who we are, who God is, and why this passage matters for our everyday lives. So I want to read this passage for us. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, was in all about a hundred and twenty, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. For us to truly grasp this text, we need to put ourselves in the mindset of the apostles for a moment. Now, I know that that's not easy to do, but let's say for the sake of argument that we can. And let's go back for a moment and recall all that they had been through. Let's really set that stage, not so that we can just mentally understand it, but that we can internalize it and almost feel what they were feeling. They had been through everything with Jesus, from extreme highs to extreme lows. They had been with him from the beginning and saw the miracles and his murder. They had gone from depression to elation after his resurrection from the dead. They knew that he had come to seek and to save the lost. But now it was time for him to become what they always dreamed of, the conquering Messiah, the one that would put it down. I mean, think about the political elections of where you are and how you how angry you get when your side loses and there's that other side to constantly just rub it in your face. And here they're saying, no, 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 not anymore. It's now time, Jesus. You have shown up. We have gone from the deep despair of depression and now it is time to declare your victory. He's the deliverer who would remove the hated Roman occupiers from their homeland, God's promised land. Or at least so they thought. So they asked him a question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it time now? Is it? It's, it's game time, Jesus. Is it? Is it? Is it the time now? They wanted to know if it was time. And Jesus gives them a response, which turns out to be his final directions to them. And Luke, who is the author of this book, records them for us. And by doing so, Luke gives us an invitation to learn from Jesus's final directions. Now, I'm amazed at how many people talk around God's word or they have these really vague ideas about how God thinks or what God says. And more often than not, it's just informed by some cultural value rather than the word of God. So let's go back and discern, learn from Jesus's final directions. These would be his final words, truths that they were to live by. In in several African cultures, the final word of a family member must be followed completely. And here Jesus gives some sobering and rather encouraging words. The apostles knew that a time was coming when he would reign, and they thought now was that time. Jesus knew their thoughts and sought to answer their question. But as he often does, whenever we ask a question... He responds, and he he doesn't always give us the answers that we want. You see, they thought he had for them to be rulers. Luke records what Jesus had said in Luke chapter 22, verse 29 through 31. This is what we read here. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, They'd already heard this from Jesus, and, and, and we read this in volume one. Remember, there's the book of Luke, and then there's the book of Acts. And they're, they're two parts of Luke's story. I mean, Luke's a historian. I mean, he's really a physician, but he becomes this historian where he writes volume one, which is all about who Jesus is, and he writes that to his most excellent benefactor, Theophilus, who really wanted to understand who this Jesus was that he was worshiping, so he agrees to finance. Luke's study trip to find out why he believes what he believes. And then in volume two, and I think this is what was going on with Theophilus, he was interacting with all of these people that were Jews and other Gentiles, and he's trying to figure out how to interact and engage this world. And I'm imagining that his friends are looking around going, why are you hanging out with all these people? In this new thing called church, what is church? What are you learning about? Why, why are you engaging with people that are so different? And they might be in a different class. They could have been from a different religious background or ethnicity. And people were wondering what he was doing. So he agrees to finance Luke's second operation to find out this thing called church and why he needed it in his life. It's pretty incredible. And so in volume one, we read about how Jesus told the apostles that they would eat and drink at his table in his coming kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And they thought now was that time. It's go time for them to step into their position as judges. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. It's go time. Here it is. Set it up, Jesus. Let's go. But Jesus changes their focus. And we, if we are honest with ourselves, are often a lot like the disciples were. We believe that God has called us to do something. It's this or that, but truth be told, just like the disciples, we often misunderstand what he has for us. Have you ever misunderstood what God had for you? I know you have, because I have. We all have. We've all misunderstood God and what he was doing at one time or another. That's why we have to go to the Word of God to help increase our understanding of what God is directing and showing us through His Word. How often have I heard people come to me lamenting that their life turned out differently than they envisioned it? We see this tendency to think one way and God has something else in place. Think about all that he has for you and what he has done in your life. I know for me, that's exactly what's happened. You know, several years ago, when I was a young man, I had just become a believer in Jesus, and I believed that God had called me to go to Bible college to train me to be a pastor of a rural church. Imagine my surprise when just a few years later, I was pastoring a church in the inner city of Chicago, interacting with people from all over the world. God has a way of totally changing our plans. And don't just think that in terms of calling or career either. You know, this principle falls into place in several different situations. From who you thought you would marry, the career you would have, or the people you were to serve. We often have a very limited vision as to what God has for us. He has something much bigger and much more grand in mind. And the disciples were looking locally 
and they wanted to know some of the mysteries into the future as to what God had for them. Isn't that like all of us? We want to know the future as to what God has for us. And we want to know mysteries that only God knows. God is mysterious and really beyond our ability to fathom. That's why I laugh when I hear people say that, can God create a taco that he couldn't lift? I've heard teenagers say that, and I I laugh. You don't really know who God is. He's so much bigger than our finite minds can ever wrap around. God is mysterious and beyond our ability to fathom. We want to know what is going to happen in this or that situation. We want to know about our future, our spouses, children, career, finances, etc. There are many of us who are consumed with this. And there are others who are consumed with this in regard to their faith and what is going to happen at the end of time. They want to have all of these end time charts and they want to predict it completely. But they would be wrong. Not wrong to study it. No, we are called to study it. But if we think that we can know every detail and correct it completely, then I believe we are sorely mistaken. Jesus doesn't call us to do that. In fact, our job is to not know the day or the hour, but rest in what we know and what he has revealed. As we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He's giving that to the people of Israel, but there is a principle there that is for us that God reveals some things and God keeps other things to himself. We can't be consumed with what we don't know. Instead, we need to respond to what we do know, which is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 32 through 33, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. That's referring to Jesus' second coming. We are not to be consumed. Instead, we are to be on guard and be awake, woke. The point is to be ready, not to be consumed with dates and times, which is why Jesus told the disciples, it is not for you to know times, or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. We shouldn't spend time trying to guess the days or the hour when Jesus is going to return, but instead to be prepared to be about the task he has given us. And what is that task? Well, let's look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God has a greater vision than them being judges in Israel. He promises to give power and then gives them and us a mission to the world. Now, there are so many Christians that spend so much time in what this power is of the Holy Spirit, and they get into deep, deep details of it, and and in many ways, lose the focus of the passage. Yes, God is going to give us power, but it's power to do something, not our own spiritual 
status, but to go and participate in God's mission to reconcile the world to himself. And it is a mission to the world. And I think we forget that. This isn't a political mission. It's not one that has boundaries. It's not one to to put out a certain kind of culture or make people embrace a certain kind of culture. No. He wants the world to see the glory of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. And notice where they were to begin, in Jerusalem, the city in which he was crucified and rose again. That was ground zero. But then was to transition to greater Judea, the area in which Jerusalem was, and then to Samaria, the difficult land where Samaritans observed half the law and worshipped locally at Mount Gerizim. It was a land considered to be of half-breeds and heretics, but they were to go crossing racial and religious barriers to extend the message of Christ and his kingdom. And from there to the ends of the earth, to every tribe and tongue, every people group. That's why we exist, to go and reach those who are far away from God. That's the point of it. It's to go and make disciples of all nations. I heard a sermon a while back by Dr. Jim Shaddix, who spoke about visiting the Hoover Dam in Nevada. He was there with some other tourists checking out this massive structure that was built to give hydroelectric power, control floods, and store water. It was built between 1931 to 1936 and cost, get this, and again, this is in 1930s money, so we are 90 years removed from this, but it cost $49 million in 1931, which is the equivalent of about $700 million today. It keeps the Colorado River at bay and gives power to millions in the states of Arizona, Nevada, and California. And while walking across this mammoth structure, a woman leaned over one of the concrete barriers trying to get a picture. She was so frustrated because she couldn't get the shot she wanted and lamented, those power lines are messing with up my pictures. That caught Dr. Shattuck's attention and he said to himself, aren't those power lines the reason that this dam is here? He went on to say this, tourists are not not the only ones that can get distracted by seemingly trivialities that they think are in the way, when in fact are the very reason that something is in existence. The church does that sometimes. We do that, I think, when it comes to this culture that we live in. You will agree with me, I believe, that we are living in a Christ-less, gospel-less culture as far as the morals are concerned and ethics are concerned. It just seems like everything has been thrown out the window. And I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I feel that this is just too much. This is so out of control. This is so distracting from us being able to do what we are supposed to do. Then all of a sudden, I stop and think, isn't a Christ-less culture, a gospel-less people, isn't that the very reason Jesus left us on the planet? It's easy as the church of Jesus Christ, as believers in Christ, as housewives and businessmen and students to get so overwhelmed by the lostness of our culture, but by the out-of-control nature of morality at every turn, whether it's the transgendered movement or it's white supremacy, whether it's terrorism, you can pick 
you can just kind of pick into our culture and just see what seems to be absolutely overwhelming issues. Did you ever find yourself as a Christian thinking, gosh, we can't do anything as a church. I can't do anything as a Christian. I just can't seem to make any progress because of all of this stuff that just seems so overwhelming. And I think we find ourselves at that place. We find ourselves like the woman leaning over the concrete barrier at the Hoover Dam saying, those power lines are getting in the way of my pictures. We need to think sometimes that the absolute depravity of the culture that we live in is getting in the way of us living our Christian lives and being the church of Jesus Christ. We return time and time again to the word of God to hear and remind us that lostness and that depravity that out-of-control nature, that Christlessness, that gospellessness, is the very reason that we are in existence. How true. We exist to testify to the truth of who Jesus is by our words and our actions and embodying within ourselves the truth of who Jesus is. And that means in our marriages, in our work, our money, our entertainments, our recreation, and the like— we're not to withdraw, withdraw from the world. The reason we are here is to glorify God by living as citizens of the kingdom, acting as preserving agents and invading agents to the sin-locked world. After Jesus gave his last instructions, we read about his ascension, one of the most neglected stories in all of scripture. We don't get this very much on the purpose of the ascension. We read in verses 9 through 11 that he ascended into heaven. And we have an invitation to learn from Jesus's last directions. And now we have an invitation to learn from Jesus's departure. We can learn from Jesus. I mean, what can we learn from Jesus ascending into the clouds? First of all, this, as the angels tell us, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Luke wanted us to understand that he is coming again. Jesus is returning. He will come back in the same way as he left, on the clouds. He will return, and this world as we know it will come to an end. Wickedness will be judged. You cannot delete that history that you have with God on your own. There is no mode that you can go into and not be seen. There is no incognito mode with God. He will return, and this world as we know it will come to an end. Wickedness will be judged. Those who insisted on their own way will go to hell. And those who truly embraced Christ will be with him forever and ever. Jesus is coming. How does that make you feel? It should give us comfort. It should give us comfort to know that he is returning. I think that the reason many Christians get so up in arms over the evils in society is because they want to win on this side and don't want to suffer. Their fighting has nothing to do with truth. They're, 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 they're fighting oftentimes, not for everyone, but it has to do with their own comfort and their own fear of what could happen to them. I think that's why many Christians get so up in arms. We have to remember, though, that our victory for, is not on this side of eternity. And those who are lost should receive our compassion, for they do not have an idea of what is coming. 
In fact, we are to be God's love agents. And when we really delve down deep into the scriptures, we find how loving God truly is. I'm reading an incredible book now by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. It's not a long book. It's under 200 pages. And it is one of the most incredible books I've ever read on understanding how much God loves us and the incredible degree in which he went in order to save us. We know that when he comes, he will dry every tear from our eyes. He will comfort us and let us know that our work was not in vain. We will see everything he did through us and were unaware of. Every kind word, every time we bore witness for Christ, sacrificed ourselves in our marriages or our workplaces, that will all be revealed. All will be made known. And knowing that Christ is coming, we should be about the task of meeting and encouraging one another. Therefore, we should commit to community. Luke takes a great deal of care to describe the remaining 11 apostles, as well as the women who had been supporting the ministry, as Luke 8, 1 through 3, as indicated, as well as Jesus' mother and some new converts, Jesus' brothers, who believed in Jesus after his resurrection. They all had come together to seek Jesus' face. It was their only means of communicating with them now. Are we devoted to meeting together to study the word of God, to pray, and to serve? Sunday morning is great, and we need to be together. COVID has shown us that, that we need fellowship. But we also need to be involved with other believers to pray and share our lives beyond Sunday morning. Our worship is not regulated to Sunday morning. We need to be together, to find ways to be together the way that God has, or the way that God desires. Whether it be in a small group that's meant to help us come together to grow and help one another on in our journey with Jesus, or just being with our friends and being taught the word of God together, but we need to be together. And we see, though, that this invitation to learn is not just for us alone, but it's for us in community. And that's what we want to help you do <laughs> and that's what we want to help you do at Apollos Watered. Not only do we want you to saturate your world, we don't want you to do that by yourself. We want you to unite with other like-minded believers to help saturate your world. And we have this invitation to commit to community, but that's not all. Next, we have an invitation to learn from Judas's death. Yes, Judas's death. Judas if you do not know, was one of the 12 apostles, and he was the one who betrayed Jesus. Luke, who is a very careful historian, and remember the author of our text, curiously omitted the details of Judas's death in his first book, but brings it out in expansion here. He says that he had been numbered among the apostles and shared in their ministry, but he then says that he acquired a field through the money he got from betraying Jesus. He got the field indirectly through the chief priests. And remember, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then in sorrow gave the money back after he learned that Jesus was going to be killed. 
They purchased the field, which was in effect purchased by the money Judas had earned. Luke says that Judas, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out, which seems like a contradiction to Matthew's account that Jesus went and hanged himself. But it's not when we examine it a bit further. We would learn that both accounts are true. Matthew says that Judas hanged himself, but doesn't say where he did it. Luke picks up the account after Matthew. Matthew describes the hanging, but Luke records what happened after the hanging. Judas probably hanged himself from a tree on the edge of a cliff, and after doing so, the rope broke, causing him to burst open in the middle with his bowels gushing out. It's a pretty gruesome description. But what can we learn from Judas's death? Three things. First of all, it helps us see that prophecy will be fulfilled. Luke tells us in verse 16 that, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Judas's destruction was foretold. It's a great example that all prophecies in scripture will be fulfilled. What is a prophecy? It's a prediction as to what God will have happen. He will bring everything that has been said to come to pass. We may misunderstand it, or we may be able to only grasp a portion of it, but we can be sure that not one part of it will fail. Jesus will return and wickedness will be judged. Righteousness will be rewarded. Here's another point that we can learn from Judas's death, and that is that proximity to Jesus doesn't mean salvation. You can say all you want about Jesus, but unless you yield to him, you surrender to him as Lord and Savior of your life. You're giving over the reins of your life. He is now in the captain's chair. He is the one that makes the decision. And part of that means relinquishing your old way of life, abandoning that, receiving what he has done, and then in following his teachings. And that's what it means, because proximity to Jesus doesn't mean salvation. Some want to put Judas in heaven, but he's not there. I remember seeing Jesus Christ Superstar when I was in high school, and I was astonished when Judas came out as a hero at the end, all dressed in white. And that's how some people perceive him. No, that's not how the Bible perceives him at all. I wasn't even walking with Jesus at that time, and I, and I remember watching that going, something is wrong with that. That's why in verse 20, we read, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. It's from Psalm 69.25. It was spoken a thousand years before it happened by King David. And this Greek word for desolate means deserted by others, deprived of the aid and protection of others, especially of friends, acquaintances, kindred, bereft. No one was to dwell with them. I mean, this act of betrayal separated him from everyone else, which is a way of saying that he is condemned. And secondly, Peter also quotes Psalm 109.8, and that says that another should replace him, meaning that he is not part of this new group that is being formed because of his disqualification. Thirdly, he is condemned because Jesus, in speaking of his betrayer, in Matthew 26, 24, says this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That's pretty bad. If Jesus said that it would be better, had he not ever even come into existence? My fourth reason is from the book of John and his description of Judas in John 12. 
Judas is frustrated at Mary for taking some very expensive perfume and anointing Jesus's feet with it. And in John 12, 5 through 7, we read that Judas questioned it and said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself as to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. No other disciple is ever labeled like that as a thief, sinner, or anything else like that. Only Judas. And the fact that John cares enough to mention it makes me believe that Judas was not a true believer in Christ. And then that causes me to go, it doesn't matter how close you might think you are to Jesus, if you don't truly know him, you are not saved. You are condemned. You can be close to him. You can grow up in church and even be in ministry full-time as Judas was going on mission trips and being part of some pretty amazing things, even things where miracles occur, but none of that means you really know him. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is only those who truly do what Jesus says in the depth of their being who are truly saved. Knowing that proximity doesn't mean salvation, that should cause us to probe our own hearts. This should cause us to look inside ourselves and follow Paul's admonition to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Are you in the faith? How do you know? What is it that makes you think you are? Or are you simply going through the motions? Are you pretending? Is Christ really in you? If he is, then you have a longing to do what he wants you to do, and you will seek to do it. You will feel conviction of sin and not be able to shake it unless you repent. If you can't pass those two tests, I don't think you are saved. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, but you... You do have a desire to be perfected. Probe your heart. Do you know him? Last in our invitations is the disciples making the decision for a replacement. Let's look at verse 20 through 26. Let another take his office. Actually, just focus on that part, not the entire of 20. Let's just look at the passage here for a moment. Let another take his office. What can we learn from this? First of all, we can see that there is a specific purpose for the apostles. They had to fill the spot. They needed 12. That would complete the new nucleus for the people of God, parallel to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, these 12 would remain the core group of the apostles, and they would serve as the foundation of the church going forward, serving as judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. And while a few others would be designated the term apostle, Paul, Barnabas, and James, it was these 12 specific men who will serve as judges at the end of time, according to Revelation 21.14. And it was through these men that the teaching of Christ would be propagated and validated through their teachings and miracles. Now, 
Can we have apostles today? Not in the, asen- not in the sense of the 12 apostles. Here's why. Because there had to be specific prerequisites that had to be filled. Notice verse 21 through 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The candidates for apostle had to fulfill some very specific requirements. They have been with Jesus from the baptism of John when Jesus began his ministry until the ascension. Remember, Jesus had the 12 apostles, but he also had 72 disciples, according to Luke 10.1, which the 12 apostles were selected from. And here, two were offered up to meet that requirement, Matthias and Justice. Some see the office as continuing on based on a few different passages, but here are the requirements show that they were for a time and the church was built upon them. And while there is a spiritual gift of an apostle, which is different from the office of an apostle, some who had the spiritual gift were, by the way, James, according to 1 Corinthians 15.7, Galatians 1.19, Barnabas in Acts 14.4 and verse 14, as well as 1 Corinthians 9.6, Adronicus and Junius, according to Romans 16.7, possibly Silas and Timothy, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 2.7, and our guy, Apollos, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 9. This latter group had the gift of apostleship, but not the apostolic or apostolic office conferred upon the 12 and Paul. Those who had the gift of apostle then were those who carried the gospel message with God's authority. And if you remember what the word apostle means, it simply means one sent as an authoritative delegate. This was true of those who held the office of apostle, like Paul, and those who had the spiritual gift, like Apollos. Though there are men like this today, men who are sent by God to spread the gospel, it is best not to refer to them as apostles because of the confusion this causes, since many are not aware of the two different uses of the term apostle. But there are many who will disagree with me. And we can see that they cast lots to see who God had chosen. The lots were probably marked stones that were placed in a pot and shaken out. Is this what we're to do today? No. And I have two reasons why. First of all, Jesus gives us no command or practice of it, nor is it specifically called for in any other New Testament letter. And secondly, it seems that it is a unique situation that is never duplicated anywhere else. Else, This is where we get into what God had described and prescribed. That's part of the, the, the question of the book of Acts. What is described is what happens and what is prescribed that we are to follow. And here it's a description, not a prescription. However, we do see that they had prayed a long time. And that's something that is commanded and we need to do more of. And that is for us to pray for guidance. What do you need guidance in right now? A job change? Finances? something with your spouse, something with your child, whether to get married. Maybe you're wondering if you're to leave or separate from your spouse. You need guidance. We all need guidance. Some of us are facing health issues. Do we continue treatment? Do we not? What kinds of treatment do we receive? 
Is God calling us to leave our job? Is God calling us to give up all of our money? Is God calling us to talk to someone about who he is? Is God calling us to fast? Is he calling us to pray? Is he calling us to practice greater generosity? Is he calling us to serve? I mean, we all need guidance. How I long for our people to come together to pray. I believe that God is working in our midst, especially through all of everything that's happened with COVID. And I believe that he will do so much more if people will turn to him in prayer and seek his face. Prayer is not the only thing, but it does play a significant part in our walk with God. God often works in proportion to his people praying. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the amazing British pastor who founded over 2,000 ministries, wrote several books and whose sermons were being distributed all over the English-speaking world in the 19th century, was once asked what the secret of his spiritual power was. I love his response. He said, my people pray for me. Do you pray for our leaders? Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for your friends? Do you pray that God would guide you? If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of spiritual attack going on in the world, especially among those in the church, especially in the West. I mean, it's happening the world over, but in the West, marriages are hurting, children are rebelling, and there is a general apathy that has come upon us as a fog. Some of our, our leaders in the church have fallen, but we are to pray and battle on. We are to devote ourselves to meeting together, to pray for God, to intervene in our lives and in the community around us. We are an outpost on the battlefield, a triad center in war, and our spiritual walkie-talkies must be utilized for God's spirit to come upon us as a church to work in us and through us for the glory of his name. If we cease to pray, then we might as well write the word Ichabod across our church thresholds which means the glory of God is departed. Pray, pray, pray. They prayed and God selected Matthias, who is to occupy the office of 12th apostle forever. And what can we learn from these different scenes from Acts 1? What, we can see that we have a mission to make his name known through the power of the Spirit, to be together as a community, to look to his second coming, to probe our hearts and pray and march forward, ready to break down the gates of hell. That's why we created this ministry. We want to help aid you in that mission. Our goal is to resource our global village so that you might water your faith and then go water your world. That's why we're looking for authors, leaders, academics, thought leaders, and everyday believers who are doing the ministry to create content to help water the world for Jesus. The internet, as, as the guys at the Gospel Coalition say, needs more Jesus. We couldn't agree more. If this is something that, that interests you, then we want to hear from you. Contact us at info at apolloswater.org and we can send you more information because what we've created is not just a podcast, but a ministry that we want to see water the faith of people around the world. We want to see many different languages, different writers from different cultural backgrounds. And if that interests you and then you have a deep desire to do that, then please don't hesitate to contact us and we can send you more information.
God's favor has been upon us, and we are excited about this ministry, and we want to invite you to participate with us. If you would like to support this ministry, then I would invite you to go to our website at apolloswater.org, and at the top right of the page is a Support Us button where you can give at different levels. If you want to just sponsor $2 a month, then go ahead and do it, or $5 a month, $10, $25, $50, or you want to sponsor by the episode, surprise us, but partner with us because God is already using us to water the world for Jesus. We're already in over 20 different countries, and we celebrate and give praise to God for that. If you want to participate with a ministry that's reaching a world, then jump on board. We would love to have you. And that's it for today, everybody. If this episode has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.